Well, what's up, church? Oh, you guys are still dead because we lost an hour of sleep last night. All right. Hey, you guys are second service people. All right. You got to sleep in a little bit. But, uh, but hey, we're, we're glad that you're here. Let me just say one thing. Um, as your pastor, okay, or as the pastor here at Grace, man, it is so fun to be able to watch people literally grow in their relationship with God simply by obeying Jesus. Right? That's what we were able to see here with baptism this morning. Baptism isn't something that's like some magical, mystical thing. Baptism doesn't save us in any way. It doesn't guarantee us a spot in heaven. It doesn't start, you know, give us a relationship with God. All baptism is, is us publicly telling people, you guys, right, in public, uh, that, uh, hey, this is who I am. This is my identity. My identity's in Jesus now. And we're able to watch a whole bunch of people between both services today kind of take that step and make that declaration before us. And so it's just so fun to watch. And uh, we're able to even to do that even with time change against us. So uh, that's, that's good. But uh, for this, the next few weeks, this morning, we're going to start a new series called The Greatest Week in History. And for the next four to five Sundays, got to figure that out, um, we're going to be walking through Jesus's last week before his crucifixion, ultimately his resurrection, right? And so we're going to be looking at the things that he said. We're going to look at the things that we did. We're going to look at the different events that happened because a bunch of stuff is kind of packed in to this last week so that we understand the events leading up to Jesus's death, all right? Does that make sense? Okay, that's what the whole series is about. Um, but first, what I want to do, and I kind of feel bad for you because I've, I've done this maybe the last three weeks, but I feel like I got to do this maybe one more time, and I promise it'll be the last time for a while. First, I want to give you the backstory to try to connect the dots, all right, from at least Moses through the Old Testament until Jesus, okay? I, I think it's just, it's just better if we understand exactly what's going on. And one thing that we do have to understand is that the Bible simply is a big, long story about how God has come to save mankind. All right, that's what it's about. Right, that's, the, that's the story. It's God saving mankind and everything is connected, okay? And I know some of this, if you guys have been here for the last two or three weeks, some of this is going to be review, all right? And sorry for you, but, uh, but it's probably good that you hear this one more time. And then some of you guys, maybe you've missed a few weeks. Maybe this is your first time here and this is like completely new to you and you're like, what is going on? You may be lost. I'm sorry about that, but... Uh, but I'm trying to quickly kind of get us through um, the centuries, really, of, of Israel. So, you guys with me? We good? Okay, all right. This is what we're going to do. All right, so, about 4,000 years ago, Israel had been slaves in Egypt at, to that point for about 400 years. And God uses this man. He, he raises up a leader. His, na- his name is Moses. And Moses, with God's help, leads the people of Israel, the Jewish people, out of Egypt and away from slavery. And God leads them to this land that he has promised him, uh, that he's promised the Jewish people called the promised land. Okay? And when they get there, they, they take over the land and it, they do almost exactly, almost what God, everything that God had told them to do. And the first 300 years that they occupied this promised land, which by the way, let me just point out one thing, super weird to me. This land located in between the Jordan River, it's in the Middle East, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea is the exact same land that Israel owns today. Is that weird? 4,000 years later, same place. It's kind of weird to me. Obviously, God's a part of that, okay? It has to be. I don't know how anybody else could explain that. So anyway, so, um, so they go to the promised land, and for the first 300 years that they occupy this land, it is terrible. 
All right, it's awful. Um, the Bible tells us that people are doing whatever they think is right. They're doing whatever is right in their own eyes. They're not worshiping God. They're not following God like they're supposed to. You know, it's just, they're, they're all, you know, everybody's kind of loose. There's nobody leading them necessarily. And they're all just kind of doing their own thing. And th- during this 300-year period is where we get the story of Ruth that we talked about like a month ago. Okay, following me? All right, it happens at the end of that 300-year period. Around that same time, maybe even while Ruth was still alive, the Jewish people come before God um, through one of their prophets, Samuel, and they say, hey, God, we want a king. They're looking at all the other nations around them. They're like, hey, everybody else is a king. We don't have a king. This isn't going well for us. Um, You know, nothing's working. And so we're all doing whatever we think is right. And so they're not following God. And they say, hey, God, we don't want you as a king. We want our own king. And so God, knowing that it wasn't what's best for them, but it's what they wanted, says, okay, I'll give you a king. And God first gives them King Saul. Eventually, God rejects Saul as king and gives them King David, who is a good king. After David dies, his son Solomon becomes king. One of the major things that King Solomon does is he builds the temple that God has, you know, that God had commanded them to build. So they build this big temple. It's it's awesome. It's magnificent. And um, and the Jewish people, really, it wasn't just for the Jewish people. It was a place where the people in the world, all around the world, could go worship God. And, um, and, and so Solomon builds that. But after Solomon's, when, after he dies, his son becomes king. And during his son's reign, right at the beginning of his son's reign, the kingdom splits in half, almost like how the United States almost split back in the you know, Civil War. So you got the northern kingdom, you got the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel. Uh, they retain the name Israel. And they are around for about 200 years. They don't have a good king, okay? Not one of their kings are real, truly God followers. And so they're kind of doing their own thing. A lot of them are worshiping fake gods. I mean, it's just terrible, terrible, st- terrible stuff. And so Israel lasts for about 200 years independent on their own until the first major world empire comes to town and it's Assyria and they come and they defeat Israel, the kingdom in the, in the north. The kingdom in the south, their name was Judah, and Judah had about mm, 50% of them were good kings, 50% of them were bad kings, meaning 50% of the kings, they followed God, the other 50% didn't follow God, and so they lasted quite a bit longer. In fact, when Assyria came through Israel, they came to attack Judah as well, and their capital city was Jerusalem, and, uh, but God had protected them, okay, because at that point, there's King Hezekiah, at that point, there were, Judah was following God and living the life that God had called them to live. But not long after that, actually 150, maybe it was a long time after that, depending on your view of time, 150 years after that, all right, Judah is defeated by the second major world empire, which was Babylon, okay, going all the way back to fourth grade history or whatever here, middle school, middle school history. So Babylon comes in, they defeat Assyria, which means they gain all of Israel, you know, the, country, the northern kingdom of Israel as well. And then Babylon comes in and Judah hasn't been conquered yet. And they come in and they conquer Judah. And when this happens, right, they come in and they like dismantle the entire city. Like they demolish it. They tear down Solomon's temple. All right, there's, there's nothing left. And they go in and they kill most of the people. But some of the people who they don't kill, they go and they take and they export, they, they send them through different parts of their empire, okay? So there's Jewish people that have, been, that have been exiled to all different parts around the Middle East of the Babylonian empire, and God allowed this to happen because the people weren't worshiping God. Okay? People weren't following God, they weren't living life right, so God allowed this kind of natural consequence 
to happen. Well, one of the guys who got deported was this young guy who lived in Jerusalem called Daniel. Okay, we've heard of Daniel before in the Old Testament. Daniel in the lion's den, you know, same guy. People, you guys are lost already, aren't you? All right, all right, yikes. All right, it's about to get a little more complicated, so focus in, all right? So Daniel, and the, uh, Daniel is one of the guys who gets deported. He actually basically spends his whole life serving the king of Babylon, and, uh, and Daniel becomes a prophet. Now, basically, a prophet in the Old Testament was simply God's messenger. So what God would do is he would go to a man or woman, okay, prophet, prophetess, he'd go to a person and say, hey, I want you to tell the Jewish people this. And so that prophet would say, okay, God, I hear your message. Hey, Jewish people, here's this. Get what I'm saying? All right, so Daniel becomes one of God's prophets, meaning God talks to him and, and tells him, some things are about to happen. And one of the things that he tells Daniel, who's not living in, in Israel or that area, he's living in Babylon working for a foreign ruler, is he says, hey, the people are going to be exiled for 70 years. But in 70 years, I'm going to allow them to go back to the promised land. But not only that, there's something so much more important. God tells him that, hey, there's going to be a future king. And way in the future, and this king is going to be the Messiah. This king is going to be a savior to everyone. That's what the word Messiah means. And so now, all the Jewish people throughout the, the land of Babylon, right, which was a huge empire, they're all waiting for this future king that is going to come and is going to save them. And everybody's obviously thinking political, and this is, this is going to be this big thing. In fact, one day when Daniel is praying all right, in Babylon, this angel shows up, and this is what the angel says. All right? Here's the complicated part, so focus in. He says, no, I understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, let me explain this real quick. So here's God. Actually, it's an angel from God telling Daniel, who's telling us, is saying, hey, there's going to be two events. All right. Number one, there's going to be an event where there's going to be a decree issued by whatever king's in charge that they are going to rebuild Jerusalem because Jerusalem's in ruins. Right, so once that decree happens, there's going to be a certain amount of time. He's going to say seven weeks and 62 weeks. There's going to be a certain amount of time. And then the anointed one, this Messiah that I've told you about, is going to come and he's going to, he's, he's, he's going to be here. All right? He's going to enter Jerusalem. All right, so Daniel understands this. The word for weeks here, some of us, we, you know, we get bogged down like, what, weeks? Seven weeks? 62 weeks? The word for weeks is literally just a, a period of time. Okay, so we look at the word week and we say seven-day period of time. Daniel's using this word as a seven-year period of time. So he says the ruler will, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So two little periods of time. I'll, get, I'll add that up for you in a second. And it will be rebuilt, talking about Jerusalem, with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. Okay, this is all going to connect to what we were talking about last week. After those 62 weeks... The anointed one will be cut off, meaning Jesus will die, and then we'll have nothing. All right, so kind of puzzling for, these, for the Jewish people in the Old Testament. They're going, okay, what exactly is here? How, you know, how long is a week? What's going on? So I got this uh, nice timeline here that we, I created on a piece of notebook paper and had it put on here. Um, but uh, here's, here's the deal. Basically, a week is a seven-year period of time, and so seven, seven-week periods of time, equals 49 years. He's saying after the, the decree is issued by whatever king that Israel's going to be rebuilt, that Jerusalem will be rebuilt, he's saying it's going to take 49 years for that to happen. 
okay, for the city to be rebuilt. And after that 49 years, there's going to be 62 weeks, meaning 62 seven-year periods, all right? A little complicated. And so if you do the math, 62 times seven-week periods is 434 years. He's saying that's when the Messiah is going to come enter Jerusalem. So all in all, once that decree is issued, there's going to be 483 years to the day. And this is all going to happen. So sure enough, we see that after Daniel writes this, about 70 years later, the Babylonian Empire happens to be um, defeated by the new world empire, which was the Persia. Persia comes in, they defeat Babylon, they own all of Babylon's empire. And when Persia comes in, the, the king, King Cyrus, he's like kind of looking around and he's like, man, why do we got all these people scattered everywhere? It's kind of weird, it's what the Babylonians did. And so he's like, hey, tell all these Jewish people and all the different peoples, they can go back home. All right, they're not required to stay in weird little, you know, towns that they have nothing to do with. He's like, tell them to go back home to their ancestral lands. And so we see after 70 years that that uh, the king, it was King Cyrus, he says, hey, everybody can go back just as God had told Daniel what happened. Daniel's dead at this point. So the Jewish people, sure enough, in several waves, they go back to Jerusalem. And we see in one of those waves, a guy named Ezra, who is the book, he writes the book of Ezra, that he goes back and he helps bring the Jews back to God. But not only that, he actually helps them rebuild the temple. Remember, that was destroyed 70 years earlier by the Babylonians. Uh, but the city of Jerusalem's still in ruins, and it's not good, and they're still owned by Persia, so, so things aren't just great. And 13 years from that moment passed by, and then a man named Nehemiah enters the scene. And that's what we talked about last week. You guys following? Okay, all right. All right, that's what we talked about last week. And if you remember, last week we talked about the story of Nehemiah starts off, ironically, with the king of Persia, most powerful man on the entire planet, King Artaxerxes, issuing a decree with Nehemiah that Nehemiah and the Jewish people could go back and rebuild the city walls and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And so once that decree was issued, Old Testament prophecy would say, that's when the timeline began, okay? That was the countdown, all right? That's like starts the clock, the countdown for the coming of the Messiah. And then Nehemiah does his thing, which we talked about in more detail last week, and, and he builds, they rebuild the city. It takes him about 49 years. And for the next 400 years after this, we got nothing, all right? It's called the silent years. Like God's not speaking through prophets anymore. The people of Israel have, have come back, or most of them have come back to the land. Um, but nothing on, you know, with, with God is, God's, they're not, you know, parts of the Bible aren't being written. The, the prophets aren't, they don't have anything. It's like God is silent. Now, a lot of things happen in the world, right? Greece comes in and defeats Persia. It's where you get like the movie 300, right? And then, and then Rome comes in and defeats Greece. And now Rome's the major world empire. And so a lot of things happen, but nothing on the God front until one night Jesus is born. And Jesus grows up. We don't have much information on, on things that happen in Jesus's life, just a couple stories here and there. But once Jesus is about 30 years old, the Bible tells us he begins his public ministry. And uh, one of the first things that Jesus does, he goes and he, he gets a bunch of young guys in their 20s right, to come follow him. All right, to, to be a part of this. And we call them the disciples. He gets 12 young guys to come follow him. And those guys with Jesus, they spend the next three years teaching and healing and encouraging people to get right with God. All right, and they're doing a whole bunch of stuff. And Jesus, 
it almost, it's like he becomes an instant celebrity, meaning people, everybody knows who he is. Not everybody liked him, right, which is obvious, but everybody knows of him. And so they're doing their thing. And it's interesting that people who are nothing like Jesus actually liked Jesus, and Jesus liked them back. Right? People who are nothing like Jesus actually liked Jesus, and Jesus liked them back. And tons of people believed, and a bunch of people started following Jesus. And then, fast forward to a few weeks before Jesus' death, he begins his slow walk back to Jerusalem. Knowing exactly what was going to happen to him, knowing that he was not going to come out of the situation, in a sense, alive. Knowing that he was going to have to die And as he's on that walk back, one day, the Bible tells us that as he was on his way, that he gets a message from two sisters named Mary and Martha. And basically, the message went something like this. The message was like, hey, Jesus, um, this is Mary and Martha here, but your really good friend and our brother Lazarus, right, he is sick, right? Things aren't looking too well. You're healing everybody. Why don't you come and heal our brother Lazarus, because again, he, he's sick, and, and uh, we could really use that right now. And so Jesus gathers his disciples together, and after they hear this, you know, what's going on, this message, and he's just like, hey guys, first thing he says, he's like, I got this. Don't worry. All right, I got this. We're going to stay here for a couple of days. All right, his disciples are like, eh, okay, you know, whatever you... You're God, you know, whatever you say, Jesus. And, uh, and so they stay there for a couple more days. A couple of days go by, and, Lazarus, and Jesus goes to his disciples, and he says, hey, guys, I got, uh, I got some news. Lazarus has fallen asleep, and so I'm going to go wake him up. All right, so now his disciples are, are listening to this. That's what Jesus says. And, and that, first of all, they're, they're not understanding that Jesus actually means that Lazarus has died. He's saying it in a really nice way, you know. And, and they're like, well, Jesus, you know. I don't know if you knew this, you know, you're God and everything, but, um, but guess what? Like, you know, usually when people are sick, it's actually good that they sleep. And so we probably shouldn't go wake him up. We should probably leave him sleeping. And so the disciples, it's just funny to me that they thought they needed to explain this to Jesus. And then they explain that to Jesus and Jesus is like, guys, he's dead. Okay. And they're like, whoa. Okay. So Jesus says, so let's go. So they begin going to this little town called Bethany. That's where Lazarus and Mary and Martha were from. And in this little town, it's only about two miles from Jerusalem. So it's literally right on their way. And when they get close to town, right, when they get close to, to, to Bethany, his sis, the sisters come running up, Mary and Martha, one at a time. And, and they're crying and they're devastated. And, and they're, they say things like, hey, Jesus, if only you were here. Like, why didn't you come? If only you would have come, Jesus, when we called you, our brother wouldn't be dead because you could totally have healed him, right? Because you're from God. And they're just like, you know, where were you? Why'd you wait? What took you so long to get here? And Jesus sees their sadness. And the Bible says that Jesus starts to cry. It moves him. And when people see Jesus crying... It says there's, there's a bunch of people there. There's a bunch of people in the crowd. There's a crowd around them because a bunch of people from Jerusalem, two miles away, had come to comfort Mary and Martha because their brother had died just a few days before. We find out, actually, he's been dead for four days at this point. And, uh, and so they're still there. They've been to the funeral. You know, they, they've been a part of all this. And some people are saying, wow, man, they see Jesus crying. They're like, man, Jesus really cares for these people. I didn't know Jesus cared so much for him. And then other people are standing around there just like, well, if he really cares for them, why didn't he come earlier and heal Lazarus? Like, what's going on here? So there, you got two different types of people saying two different things. And in John chapter 11, verse 38, this story is so important. It says, then Jesus, 
deeply moved again, came to the tomb. And it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. So Jesus and the crowd, they go to where Lazarus is buried, and, uh, and Jesus does something weird. He says, first thing, he says, hey, remove that stone. There's a big rock in front. He's like, hey, remove that rock. And immediately, Martha, he comes up to, she comes up to Jesus. She's like, whoa, 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 Jesus, you can't do that. All right? Lazarus, I don't know if you know this, Jesus, you're God and everything, but this is how things work, right? Lazarus has been dead for four days, and so you open that up, it's going to stink. It's going to be, you know, it's just awkward. It doesn't, just doesn't seem right. He's already buried. We're going to unbury the dead. What's going on here? He's in his tomb. You know, we, let's not open this up. And so she says, Lord, there's already a stench because he has been dead for four days. Bad idea, Jesus. Let's not do this. And so Jesus said to her, and I think, I don't know. I wasn't there. But I think maybe Jesus kind of cracked a smile here. He's like, didn't I tell you that if you believed that you would see the glory of God? He's like, aren't I, I don't know, God, (laughs) right? Like, don't you believe that I have the glory of God? Like, like, didn't I tell you that you'd see the glory of God, that you'd see me do crazy stuff? And so they removed the stone. And then Jesus, he raised his eyes and he says, he starts praying to the Father. He says, Father, I thank you that you heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus, he, they're up at the tomb. They removed the rock. They, get, you know, they, they probably all can smell this rotting body, Lazarus. He's been in there for four days. And Jesus, he just looks his eyes up to heaven, and he just starts praying to the Father. And basically what he's saying here is he's saying, hey, God, I'm, Father, I'm not doing this for me. I'm not asking you to do this for me. All right, I'm praying to you out loud, basically, so all these people understand that this is from you, and me and you are one. All right? That we are one and the same. He says, so that they may believe that you sent me. And so after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice. He says, Lazarus, come up now. Picture this, all right? Can you picture being here for this? All this is happening. This is super weird, right? They've removed the rock. They can smell this guy. They're, you know, Jesus is praying. And then Jesus shouts into the, into the cave and says, Lazarus, come on out. And nothing happens, right? Like, think about it. They're all standing around, and it's just awkward. Probably all, it's probably silent, too. Everybody's just like, this is awkward. <laughs> Never been a part of this before. And then, after my guess, a few minutes, because I bet it took a little while. Don't think Lazarus just came running out. All right. It says the dead man came out. He's bound hand and foot, right? So he's wrapped tightly. So he's trying to get up and he's wrapped tightly with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus, again, I think he smiles here and he says, unwrap him, let him go. Therefore, after this happens, he says many, key word here, many of the Jews. Remember, there's a huge crowd around. Everybody's watching Jesus. Everybody wants to know what Jesus is going to say and what he's going to do next. I mean, no one's seen this before. This is crazy. It says, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed. Undeniable. 
Like, these are the same people that were at the funeral days before. They're like, we know that dude was dead. We could smell him. We knew that he was dead. And here, they're looking, you know, they, they see him walk out. He's wrapped in his claws, and, and you know, Jesus is smiling, and, he, you know, and, and Mary and Martha are probably, you know, freaking out. Ah, you know, Lazarus, you know, just, they're just going crazy. And people are just like, I can't deny this. Like, like I'm seeing this with my own eyes, and because they see this with their own eyes, they believe in him, or at least most of them, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, we've talked about the Pharisees before. Pharisees uh, were basically just the religious leaders of that day. These guys were the ones, they had power, they were in charge, they had prestige. These guys, were, most of them were well off, they were rich. These were the religious rulers and, uh, and leaders. And so some of these people, they go to the Pharisees to tell them what Jesus had done. And, and Jesus and the religious leaders, they butt heads a lot, which is kind of interesting. And says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees, they convened the Sanhedrin. What's that? That's like their club meeting, okay? So like, hey, call the Sanhedrin. Call all the important people together. We need to talk about what Jesus has done just two miles away. This is all happening in Jerusalem. What Jesus has done two miles away in Bethany. And so they were saying things like, what are we going to do? Since the man is doing many signs. They don't even say Jesus' name. They're saying that dude. All right, what are we going to do since that guy is doing all these crazy things. They're saying that he raised a guy from the dead, all right? A bunch of people are saying this. Like, there's a whole crowd there that watch this. And they're like, if we let him go on like this, it says everyone will believe in him. It's like, what are we going to do, right? He's doing this stuff. He's doing these miracles. Everybody is going to believe in him and believe that he is God. And then when that happens, they're going to declare him king, and the Romans will come, and they will take away both our place and our nation. See, these guys are worried about, they're like, hey, if we start calling Jesus king, or they would never call Jesus king, but if the common people would start calling Jesus king, they're like, hey, Rome is going to come in because under Rome rule, Roman rule, there aren't any other kings. It's Caesar and nobody else. And so they're saying, hey, they're going to call Jesus king, and then Rome's going to hear about it, and Rome's going to come in and just crush us. They're going to destroy our place. They're going to destroy Jerusalem and our nation, like in our heritage, it's just, they're just like, it's all going to be gone. And so these guys have had enough. They're like, hey, if we let this guy go, like everyone's going to believe. And so here's the importance of the story. The raising of Lazarus, which is often left out of, you know, the first week, because technically it's like a week and a half before Jesus died. The raising of Lazarus is so important because this is like the final straw for these people. Right, triggers all these events. It triggers the hate in these religious leaders' heart, and it pushes them to finally take action. In fact, in John 11, chapter, or chapter 11, verse 53, he says, so from that day on, they plotted to kill him. So these guys are so mad that they are ready to kill Jesus. All right, it's so weird to me. Like, like, think about this. All right, Jesus came as like the ultimate religious leader, right? I mean, he's God, Right, so that helps. He came as like the ultimate religious leader, but he did not gravitate towards religious people. In fact, a lot of times he butt heads with religious people. And it was because Jesus constantly teached, he taught, he was constantly saying, hey, it's not about religion. All right, it's not about religion. It's not about doing a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's not about a bunch of rules. It's not about, you know, doing just enough. You know, I, I hope someday my, my good outweighs my bad. And, and it's, he's saying it's not about all that. He's saying it's about a relationship with your creator. That's what matters. And the religious people, they hated this. They hated this so much. I mean, they want to kill him. 
And this is what gets everybody all riled up right, in, in Jerusalem. This is, what, this is what makes them start taking the steps to take Jesus down. And Jesus hears about this somehow, and he, or maybe he just knows because, again, he knows everything. And, and Jesus leaves, actually, for a few days. He leaves Bethany for a few days, and he comes back on the Saturday before his death to this little town called Bethany that's two miles away from Jerusalem. And he knows what's about to happen. And this is a lot of people find out that he's there. In fact, John tells us that it says, then a large crowd of Jews learned that he was there. Hey, Jesus is back in town, right? He's back in Bethany. All right, cool. And so they came not only because of Jesus, right? That was one reason, but also to see Lazarus. All right, so these guys, these Jewish people from Jerusalem, they word has spread, okay? Everybody knows about this Lazarus thing. You know, everybody knows what has happened. He knows that he's the one that he had raised from the dead. And so everybody's just like, I want to go see that guy. I want to go see Jesus. I want to go see what he's asked to say. I'm going to go see what he's going to do next. Maybe he'll raise somebody else from the dead. That'd be sweet. All right. I want to go see this. And then they're like, but Lazarus is there too. I also want to see Lazarus to make sure that this is actually true. Next verse says, but the chief priests, they had decided to kill Lazarus also. So here, these guys, not only now do they want to kill Jesus, but they also want to kill Lazarus because they're like, hey, we got, you know, Lazarus is still alive. We can't have that because he was dead. And so we got to get rid of him too. And so because he was the reason, many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. So all these, there's crowds everywhere. Jerusalem is crowded. They're having like a festival. And so all these people are there. They, they hear about this Lazarus thing. A bunch of people saw this Lazarus thing with their own eyes. And some of them, they, they hear Jesus back in town. They all rush to Bethany. Bethany is probably overwhelmed with crowds of people. And they, they, they're all there to see Lazarus and Jesus a few days later after all this had happened. And then the next day, on Sunday morning, everybody's there, town's packed out. It says Jesus and the disciples, they wake up and they start their two-mile walk to Jerusalem. And on his way, he tells a couple of the disciples, he says, hey, I want you guys to go run along, run ahead. There's going to be a colt. It's going to be tied up. All right, bring that colt to me, by the way. If anybody asks you any questions, just tell them, God's going to use it, okay? And they'll be cool with that. And so they do exactly that. They bring Jesus this colt. And it's so interesting that he did this because the Jewish people, especially, by the way, the religious leaders, should have understood exactly what was happening here. Because 400 years earlier, during the time of Nehemiah, where we were talking about last week, God told the Jewish people through another prophet named Zechariah that this is exactly what was going to happen. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. He says, Look, your king is coming to you, and he is righteous and victorious, and he's humble, and he's riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right, so here, this is, God has already told them exactly what was going to happen. And this day that Zechariah is talking about is this day that Jesus is writing in. Like, it's the day. All right, it's the day that Daniel was talking about. It's the day that Zechariah was talking about. It's the day that all the Old Testaments were, all the Old Testament prophets were pointing to saying, hey, that day Jesus is going to ride in to Jerusalem. And that was what we call today Palm Sunday. God had told them 400 years earlier. John chapter 12, verse 12, says, when the large crowd that had come to the festival, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and these people are pumped, right? They took palm branches, and they went out to meet him, and they kept shouting things like, Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. These people are excited, like this is their king. And what these people are thinking is they're like, hey, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to overthrow Rome. 
right? These people haven't been an independent nation since, uh, together at least, since the time of Solomon, okay? 750 years in the past. Like, it's been a while. It's been a long time. And so, like, Jesus, he's going to come. He's going to be the king. He's the Messiah. He's going to overthrow Rome. Uh, and, and they're excited. They're shouting things like, Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. But what we know is that later on in the week, they're going to be in the same streets, in the same spots, shouting something completely different. Shouting things like, hey, crucify him, crucify him. They're going to say, hey, put his blood on our hands. We don't care. Put his blood on our hands and our children's hands. See, what they end up doing and what we see throughout the story is that they are making Jesus who they want Jesus to be. It's like they're inventing their own Jesus, right? They're inventing their own Messiah. In their minds, they're saying, hey, this, whatever that might be, is, is what a Savior should do or what a Savior should look like. And for them, it's all political stuff, right? It's all, it's all political. They want to be free from Rome. They want a king and a leader. And so what the Jewish people are doing, if you think about it, is they are celebrating a limited, watered-down, diluted version of Jesus. That's what they're doing. And many people do the same thing today. You know, we're all, probably most everybody in this room, okay, we're all probably the same where we're like, yeah, I like the idea of Jesus. You know, I'm cool with Jesus. I, Jesus, yeah, me and Jesus, I'm, I'm totally fine with that. But we end up, what we end up doing is we end up forming our own Jesus in our own head, in our own mind, and we start forming this God that we think God should be like or what Jesus should be like. And we look at Jesus' life in the Bible and we're like, hey, you know, we pick the parts of Jesus that we like and we reject the parts of Jesus that we don't like and we kind of form our own thing. We go like, hey, yeah, love and peace. Jesus taught about that. I'm all about that. Throw that, throw that in my Jesus. But, you know, um, righteous wrath, eh, I don't like the word wrath, so I'm not going to deal with that or, or judgment or justice. Well, I like justice when it is justice for me, but I don't like it when it's justice, for, you know, against me necessarily. And so we, we make our own Jesus. And when we do that, what we're doing is we're celebrating a limited, watered-down, diluted version of Jesus, just like the Jews were doing this day. The thing we got to understand is, man, Jesus came for so much more than political freedom. Jesus came for such a bigger, much more, you know, a bigger reason than just to make you feel good or just to teach you some, I don't know, good stuff. He came to free you and me by paying for everything that we've ever done in our entire lives, all the wrong things that we've done. And this is huge. And this was exactly what Daniel was talking about hundreds of years before. I mean, this was it. This was the day, right? Like this was the anointed one. The anointed one was finally riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, just like, just like Daniel and just like Zechariah had said. It was the greatest week in history, and it was right at the beginning of the greatest week in history. And their Messiah, their Savior, the one that the Jews have been waiting for is finally here. And the Jews seem to have some ideal of it, or at least they believe, hey, this is it. And so they're celebrating, and it's just like a huge party as Jesus is entering into town. I remember a few, uh, back in 2016, I've told you guys this before, I went to uh, Cleveland to watch game seven of the finals for the, for the Cavs, and, uh, and they won. I remember there, Cleveland was just packed, like there's just people everywhere, out in the street watching on a big jumbotron. And I remember as the clock went down to zero, it was like hard to believe, like, did this just happen? 
Did they just win? Are we sure? You know, the clock goes down to zero, and Cleveland erupted. I'd never seen anything like it in my entire life. It was by far my number one sports experience, okay, as I'm standing there watching all this happen. People are going crazy. They're jumping. People are climbing, like, light poles. I don't even know how you do that. They must be into, like, CrossFit and stuff because um, they're, like, skimmy. I'm like, dang, that's uh, some sh- Got to be strong to do that. They're like climbing on, climbing on you know, fire trucks. They're doing all kinds of stuff. Um, some stuff illegal, yeah, but they're doing all kinds of stuff. They're just excited, and everybody is pumped. Like, everybody is happy. It's exactly what was going on here. Same thing, streets of Cleveland. Same thing was going on in the streets of Jerusalem back here. And Luke tells us that when the religious leaders heard the crowd calling Jesus their king, they are ticked. Luke says this. He says, some of the Pharisees, from the crowd, there's some, there's some people who aren't, aren't super excited in the crowd as well, like the Pharisees, these leaders. They're in the crowd figuring out what's going on. And they yell out, they hear these people calling Jesus king, and they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He's like, hey, Jesus, you need to, they just called you king. You need to tell them not to do that. And Jesus says this. I just added this verse in because it's, it's sweet, okay? He says, he answers, he says, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. I don't know what that would sound like, but I guarantee you it would have been sweet. Um, but uh, but he's, like, he's like, the rocks would cry out if they wouldn't keep quiet. This is how it has to be. See, it's crazy. The religious leaders, they automatically reject Jesus as God. Think about it. Their job, literally, their job is to get the Jewish people ready for the Messiah. Their literal job is to get people to be ready and, and to tell people about when the Messiah was going to come. And they've been doing this. They've been, they've, been, you know, they've been waiting for this guy for hundreds of years. And here they miss it. Instead, not only do they reject Jesus, but they're trying to kill him. It's the greatest week in history. And these guys are all ticked off, self-absorbed with themselves. Check out what Jesus says. This is the last verse. Jesus as he approached and saw the city, he wept for it. Now, what? what? That doesn't make sense, right? I mean, here, everybody's going crazy. This is like the streets of Cleveland when the Cavs finally, when, when some franchise finally wins a championship in over 50 years, you know? And everybody's going crazy. And here's Jesus. He's riding in on this donkey coat. He's like a king coming into his city, and he's crying. What the heck is going on here? The word for wept here, it's not even just crying. It's not like he's just shedding some tears, maybe tears of joy. It's not it. It's actually, it means deep sorrow, right? Actually, it's even more than that. It's audible deep sorrow. So here, Jesus audibly somehow, I don't know what the noise he was making, he is so, so sad because he knows that these are the same people that just days later, later on in the week, that they're going to turn on him. They're going to be wanting him dead. He says, uh, this, so this is what Jesus says. He says, man, if you knew this day and what would bring peace, it's like they could have peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. He's saying they're missing it. For the days will come on you when the enemies will build a barricade around you. They will surround you and they will hem you in on every side. For they will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst. What he's actually referring to, he's, he knows that they're going to reject him later on in the week, and because of that rejection, he knows what the natural consequences will be. And he's pointing to an event that's about to happen in 40 years, we know from history, in 70 AD, that the, uh, the Jewish people, they kind of launched one last revolt against Rome, which was a stupid idea, okay, because they're tiny and Rome is huge. They, won, they, they launched a last revolt against Rome, and Rome comes in and just crushes it. 
Right? Rome comes in and tears down the temple that, that Ezra had built, you know, way back in the Old Testament. They've been there for hundreds of years. Rome comes in and just, just tears down everything, tears down, you know, Jerusalem is in ruins. And so Jesus is pointing to the future, and he's like, because you guys are going to reject me, because you're missing it. There's about to be some bad stuff that's going to happen, and he's crying. And he says, because all this happens because you did not recognize the time, think about this, when God visited you. Think about that. Think about these words. Like he's been telling these people for years. He's saying, I'm the one. Right? Like this is the time. <clears throat> We've been waiting for this for hundreds of years. This is it. And, and here's God of the universe who, cre- the Bible says, created the stars. He just kind of flung them out. He used words to create the millions of stars in the millions of galaxies. And, and you know, using nothing but words. And that God, he's saying, is here this day and he is here to visit them. He's here, I'm here to visit you, and you're missing it. And I told you how it was going to happen. He told them when, he told them how, he told them what, and they still missed it. And he's so sad and he's so frustrated about this. And you know what the sad part is? Many people still miss it to this day. Like, Like there's people in here that are missing it right now, right? Because you know what a lot of people have done, right? Like what I said earlier, we, we create this God in our minds, this God that we think, you know, well, this is the God. If there was a God, like this is how that God would be. And we make our own Jesus. And when you do that, what you're doing is you're missing out on the real thing. You're missing that relationship that you could have with the real deal. And so I guess that's my question for you this morning. As we, as we launch the series and we get the series going, I just want everybody to understand, or I just want everybody to at least question themselves just a little bit. I just want you to ask yourself, are you missing it? Are you missing the moment or the fact that God came and visited us? Are you missing that? See, just a few short days later, Jesus was going to pay your punishment and my punishment for everything that we've ever done wrong. He's going to pay the price of your sin so that you don't have to, so that I don't, so that we don't have to, to make that relationship possible. By the way, that relationship is what we were created for. We were created for a relationship with God. And so he has given us that opportunity to, to now to have that relationship. And the Bible says it's super simple to start that relationship. By the way, it's not something that we're born with. It's not that we've always had a relationship. That's not how it is. It's a decision that we got to make at some point in our lives. I've made that decision in my life. Okay, we all have to do that at some point or not do it. But basically it's this question. It, it, what we got to understand is, is this. Is we got to understand that Jesus came to save us. Right? He came to pay the price. Why do you have to pay the price? Well, because God is perfectly just and, and sin has to be paid for. It has to be paid for. It's not something you can just sweep under the rug. Right? It has to be taken care of. And so he came and he paid the price. He paid the punishment that each and every one of us deserved. And so now he's saying all you have to do is ask me and to, to have that relationship with me, and it's done. I promise. I'm, I'm there. Some people, maybe you feel him tugging on your heart right now where you're like, I don't know, maybe I am missing it. And God's saying, you are. All right, invite me into your life. Give me your life because maybe you've never done that before. And if you haven't, what I would encourage you to do is take five minutes, just between you and God, not between you and anybody else, but take five minutes 
sometime this afternoon, because you don't know if you have tomorrow, and spend five minutes with God and invite him to be a part of your life. Do that. Take the time. It's well worth the five minutes. Eternity is literally at stake, Jesus tells us. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about how all this unfolds leading up until his death. And, uh, and so I want to encourage you to come back and uh, we'll really get into it, some of the things that Jesus has to say next week. But let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you for loving us and we thank you for this church and we thank you for all the baptism that, baptisms that happen today and watching people obey you and growing in the relationship with you, taking the next step in the relationship. God, we, um, we thank you for coming and riding in Jerusalem that day, 2,000 years ago, and, and you paid the price that we couldn't pay so that we have the opportunity to have a relationship with you. God, if there's anybody in this room, we ask that they would start that relationship with you today. There's no better day than now. And God, we thank you for this church and this family, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we will see you guys back here next week. Go take a nap, and uh, we'll see you back here next week.